it's Graham Norton here. Thank you so much for listening to my Virgin Radio podcast. Coming up, I speak to the lovely Monica Dolan about her new historical film, The Dig. Irish author Liz Nugent drops by and drops clues about her brand new thriller, Our Little Cruelties. Lydia West and Ollie Alexander speak to me about the runaway success that is It's a Sin. And Ray Bandaki spills all on the third series of Marcella. But first, here's Maria. I'm here. <laughs> I love that song. I've been dancing around the kitchen, Graham. Oh, you. Well done. Well, I hopefully, know. hopefully everybody has. I moved slightly. I, I did jig in my chair slightly. Yeah. You twitched a bit, I'm sure. I did. Well, my legs are so cold. They can, I mean, I don't think I could dance. They were just... Why not the long johns, Graham? Come on, you're a grown-up. You know it's cold. It's one degree, minus one, probably, in London. I'm I'm a fool. I'm a fool. But at yeah. least it wasn't... It wasn't... Because I'm... You know, I do cycle, but I'm... I'm not a very confident cyclist. Uh, so if it was snowy or icy, I think I might just walk. But it wasn't icy, so it was grand. But it wasn't. You just needed to put your long johns on. Graham, do you know what? This morning, I... <laughs> Have you been in the I sea? So... Have you been in I the sea? So... What? Have you been in the sea already? No, I haven't yet. Oh, good. Um, I am so longing for sort of social contact and parties and things that my subconscious decided to give me, in my sleep, a lovely opening day party for your show, Virgin, through, right? Yes. A kind of launch party for your show. Oh, yes. And um, you and I were there. You were invited. Big... I was invited. Oh, really? <laughs> or oh. I gate crashed. Oh, that's, aw- that's awkward. Uh, yeah, awkward. <laughs> but it, um, and it was at the top of the tower and there were lovely views and there was a big spread and lots of booze. And um, there were only other two people there because there's only two other people I know at Virgin. One is our boss, Mike, <laughs> and one is our producer, Nick. So there's just four of us. And then the, the, it's all a bit hazy, but you and I got very, very drunk and were escorted out of the building by security. Oh, no. I know. It's happened before. <laughs> I like, even in your dream, even I'm in your dream, bad. our party went wrong. <laughs> we got overexcited. But then just gave me a hangover this morning as well and not a drop of alcohol past my lips. That is the power of the mind, Graham Norton. <laughs> That's so sweet that you're, you're subconscious. Got to win. Yeah, they're going to get. Party. They'll get very drunk. They won't eat enough, and they're going to make fools of themselves. They'll get overexcited, show off, and then they'll fall down the escalators on the way out. <laughs> it was lovely, though. Um, I would pay. I'm going to crowdfund to get some money to pay you to sing "Mr. Brightside" by the Killers on karaoke. I think your audience really needs to hear that, Graham. My. My audience, such as it is, would not exist after I'd after I'd sung because it's quite a long song. It's fine because the other thing it put me off because I was thinking, oh, I'd like to sing this, and then I know it's about five minutes long that song and bad karaoke, bad karaoke. It's funny for about a minute, and then (laughs) it's just hell. Just I know hell. that people want to hear you, and I really want to hear you. And the longer, the better, and the more excruciating, the better. People like to you to see, be vulnerable, Graham. They like to see you vulnerable. Oh, hey, did you watch yeah. the uh, inauguration? I did. Yes, I found it sort of strangely emotional. Yes, I didn't watch it. I got the reviews. My mother watched it for me, so I got her reviews. Uh, and what, she what was did well, she was very worried about Doctor Chill because Doctor Chill looked very cold. Uh, you know, she's no spring chicken, and she wasn't wearing a hat, and she looked like she was dressed for a spring wedding. I'm told a spring well, she, wedding. Doctor Jill probably was sensible enough to put on her long johns, Graham. Oh, do you think she had some sort of electric hot suit underneath? <laughs> of course, she did. It's America. It's very high tech <laughs> over there, apparently. <laughs> well, I like the way that, but you you weren't cold till you saw people who work like so. Um, Joe and J- Doctor Jill were, you know, just well, look at us. We're just yeah, we're just standing around in in minus something, but then. And you cut to there was some woman was representative somewhere, and she was just wrapped in blankets the way you should be. And you thought, she oh, would be right. delighted with that intro, though, a representative of somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> you should be one of those anchors on CNN. I know. Well, I, I would like to have done kind of Eurovision commentary. <laughs> oh, that would be great. Why didn't you do that on Zoom? <laughs> oh, and Ber- Bernie in his mittens. Oh, uh, that has pleased me enormously. I very much liked a picture of him in the red chair as well, your televisual show, Red Chair. That was well, someone was saying, you know, because the meme went out and sort of uh, people were putting Bernie Sanders everywhere in that chair. And someone yeah. tweeted about, wow, people will put Bernie anywhere apart from the White House. 
<laughs> funny, very funny. Talking of Zooms, Graham, I had one this week. It was a bit embarrassing. I've decided never to do them again. What's wrong with phones? What's wrong with conference calls? Yes. Nobody needs to see me. I don't need to see anybody. But I had one with a couple of people, and it was all sort of fine. And then I went, okay, then, well, let's speak. You know, blah, 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 blah all of that. End. Pressed kind of, you know, end meeting. Yes. And then, because I talk to myself now because I'm so lonely, um, I said to the dog, well, what a complete waste of time that was. <laughs> and I heard somebody say, what? <laughs> On the Zoom coming from my computer. And I had to go, buying you that treat that is meant to clean your teeth that you won't eat, Dolly. <laughs> and Dolly is looking up at me from the sofa where she's been perfectly fine. And what are you talking about, you mad woman? You haven't given me a treat. I don't think I got away with it, Graham. No, I heard one. Somebody, they thought closing the laptop finished it. Oh, no, you have to And that, that doesn't finish it. So, and they said a lot more than that was a waste of time. <laughs> This wasn't oh, me. No. This wasn't me. This was somebody no, else. It was you, wasn't it? No, it wasn't me. It really wasn't me. Um, and it didn't end well. That's all I'll say. I'll I mean, do you I'll, do That's one of those stories. I, actually, I shouldn't have teased that. So I'll t I will ring you and tell you that whole story because it involves famous people. It was very good. <gasps> yeah. I, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> you know, modern technology, it's our friend till it turns on us and then it's not our friend. I'm stopping now. Uh, listen, uh, have, you got, have you got some uh, um, letters ready? I might have. I'll phone you in the record to tell you. All right, well, prepare yourself. <laughs> Dear Graham and Maria, I have a friend, Pablo, who has been in a secret relationship with a married man for over 10 years, exclamation mark. The married man will not leave his wife and kids, but they, Pablo and this man, manage to meet for meals out, walks, cycles and even holidays abroad. My issue is that Pablo is a real catch and ultimately is just going to end up alone. He is living a half-life with a man enjoying a double life. The problem is, he really loves this guy. I don't know what to do to help him move on. Should I just leave them be in this deceitful mess? And that is from Felicity in Cardiff. Um, I'm not feeling very generous this morning, Graham. so I'm uh -oh. going to say, F Felicity, have you got skin in the game? What's going on here? I mean... Other than your own moral compass, which I understand, you know, you cannot dictate how people choose to live their lives. It's not like this has just begun as well. This has been going on for 10 years. Um, of course, it's deceitful and I feel for the wife and child, but there, there are lots of Pablos and other people that are involved in deceitful things. And I'm not sure quite what it's got to do with you, Felicity, because he's a grown up. Pablo is a grown up. He's he knew what he was taking on and he knew what the terms were and he's gone along with them. You know, I'm sad for Pablo. He may be a catch, but he doesn't have very much self-esteem, it would appear, because he's decided, as you say, to live a half-life. Um, uh, oh. Yes, of course you have to just leave them be. How can you possibly unravel this? I think... I think Graham might have a clue, though, Well, uh, well all, I'm, all I would say, I'm a little more generous. In that Pablo has done a very stupid thing in that Pablo's got involved in an affair. It doesn't matter whether he's married to a, a woman, a man, you know, whatever. It, it, Pablo's having an affair. Dumb move. Uh, it won't end well. The fact that it's gone on for 10 years sort of makes it worse because now it's been totally normalized this is what they all do and and but it still won't end well and i think felicity's right all felicity can do i think is say what she said to us say that to pablo look pablo but presumably over a 10 year period she must have had this conversation with him you know you're a catch why don't you find somebody that is completely yours and you don't have to share how can you live this double life i mean you know after 10 years you don't suddenly decide to write to two losers like us <laughs> and ask for advice i feel well i i don't know because i think you you Ten years goes by in a flash, as we know, and I think you think something's going to change or I'll grow tired of this or I'll meet someone else, and that hasn't happened. They are still in this kind of grubby thing. Uh, the only thing I would say is hopefully uh, lockdown is making them go cold turkey because it's 
much harder, I imagine, to come up with excuses for where you are. If you're not going to work, uh, <laughs> where, I mean, are, you, know, by where the are you going? They have been having quite a relationship with meals out, walks, cycles, holidays abroad. They're, ju they're just not living together. And, you know, maybe this suits Pablo. Maybe he likes to flit about and do his own thing. And But, you know, lockdown, maybe absence makes the heart grow fonder, Graham. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, actually, that is the point, Felicity. Maybe your friend doesn't want a relationship. Maybe, as, as Maria says, this suits him, that he likes having a half-life where actually most of his life is about himself and he can go about his business and do what he likes. And then every now and again, he has this kind of weird sort of, part-time, part-time lover, uh, you know, to quote Sir Elton. Um, yeah. But uh, it, it also may be that Pablo is, you know, dining out elsewhere in his time off. He may be having a bit of a double life that you don't know about. Felicity from Cardiff, keep your nose out. Oh, yes. So he's having two half-lives. <laughs> two half-lives. <laughs> Makes a whole life. One. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but the other man has a double life, Graham, so that's not... He's so name. lucky, isn't he? <laughs> he isn't he lucky. I want a double life. Um, it, it is a... Look, I think the trouble is, it's a huge mess, Felicity. You're quite right. However, it's not your mess. So I think once you've said your piece, and, and actually, I think your your take on it is a very generous take on it because you're seeing Pablo as some sort of victim in this, and really, he's not. You can You can you know, shade in the the picture that way. But he's not a victim. He's chosen to do this. And he, I know that was a very foolish thing, but it has gone on. But I, I think once you say your nice, generous thing about, oh, you know, you're, you're worth more than this, then you must just step aside and watch it all crumble and... <laughs> You know, because if this is a movie, bit, it, it, if this is a movie, it does not end happily. There's no, but unless Pablo comes to you, Felicity from Cardiff, and says, "I'm so unhappy, I don't know what to do. Can you help me out of this situation?" That hasn't happened, Felicity. No. You know, he's he knows what he's doing. The man knows what he's doing. The other man with the wife and kids. Um, <laughs> we got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got it. I just don't know where Felicity fits into this equation. Well, she's at the side and she's got some pom-poms and she's Pablo's cheerleader. And <laughs> the game is going very badly and she's really... She wants to call a timeout and tell Pablo to just leave the pitch. Abandon. Yeah. You've abandon overstretched that metaphor now. <laughs> I liked it, though, because it's American football. Yeah, no, it's, good. it's American we're football. Good, Who off. knew? Who knew I knew that much about American football? He's I on the five-yard line, I'd say. Uh, yeah. Oh, now, don't spoil it. <laughs> Uh, Lee in Wolverhampton, the fact you were trying to get involved now, after 10 years, is far too late. You should have tried to stop him sleeping with a married man years ago. Unfortunately, now you've missed your chance and you need to, you need to let him get hurt and learn from it. There you go. Great about it. Yeah. That's what you need to do. Let him, let his heart be broken. Uh, Smudge in Peterborough, you need a good old-fashioned intervention. Love an intervention. Sit Pablo down. Explain everything. Make him see how silly he's being. Well, you're not going to make him see how silly he's being. It's been ten years he's in love. Uh, make him realise that this married man obviously doesn't love him. It'll be tough for him to hear, but it's for the best. And that's what good friends do. Oh, now, Ruby in Norwich has very radical advice. Speak to the married man. And give him an ultimatum. Either he leaves his wife and goes public with the affair or leaves your mate alone and lets him move on. Don't tell your mate you've done this, however, as he won't thank you for it. Trust me, I've been there. Never ends well. And yet you advise someone to do it. <laughs> oh, I've done this. It's terrible. But why don't you do it? Yeah. <laughs> Ruby, wrecking one life at a time. Well done, Ruby. Yeah, no, I mean, because if they're involved, then the husband will say to Pablo, Oi, your friend Felicity, she's been giving me an earful. Um, Joan Gasoline just says, stay at a distance, be there for Pablo if he needs you. That's what friends do. Well done. Alarm bells. Be very careful how you approach it. You can tell him you're there for him and give him advice. But remember, he doesn't have to listen to it. Don't be annoyed if he doesn't. Kel in Swansea. Maybe she knows them. Swansea, quite close to Carter. Uh, the heart wants what the heart wants. Can you love two people at the same time? Not in our society. It's not acceptable. Nick and Cardiff is quite modern, isn't he? It's quite a Welsh problem, this, clearly. <laughs> not in our society. It's not acceptable. Nick Nick wants to set up a commune. Uh, sounds like Pablo has the best of both single alone time and having his needs filled sexually and companionship-wise when he needs it. Uh, so... <laughs> 
<laughs> Craig and Lucy and haven't. Spill the beans to everyone, then sit back with a glass of wine and a clear conscience and watch the fireworks. Lovely. Maybe Katie Berry will sing. Be lovely. Uh, Bunty. I am love that we've got a listener called Bunty, who, where does she live? Cheadle. Of course Bunty lives in Cheadle. Uh, Felicity. Look it. Bunty's not why Bunty's not having I mean, Look at we don't know what he, we don't know. Sounds to me like Pablo is probably quite happy with this non-committed arrangement as his friend and possibly his wife. Do you perhaps hanker after Pablo yourself? In which case, it sounds like that will end badly. So in a caring way, of course, keep your beak out. All right. Uh, I th- this is Sharon in, in Wisbeach. I think it's Wisbeach. That's what you call it, isn't it? I think we start from the wrong point sometimes, assuming that coupled-up bliss is the default or preferred idyllic state, whereas, in fact, this may not be the case for some people. In this case with Pablo, the road to that destination is potentially very hard and fraught with angst for everyone, except What's her name? And they, <laughs> that's the wife, I'm guessing, or maybe Felicity. And they all may very well be happier all round with the current position. That is true. Um, uh, Jackie says, uh, Felicity's placing her own values on this. For all she knows, this could well suit all parties. From a female perspective, there's often nothing better than when your husband is out of the house. E.g. his golfing week and weekends away are bliss for us both. Yet yeah, you don't mention his, like, with his boyfriend. <laughs> like... Popping down the golf course for the afternoon. Quite different, I feel, than having an affair with Pablo for 10 years. And Melanie and Mark, we were wondering if Felicity's in love with Pablo herself, and that's why she's so concerned. Why are you so into what Pablo is or isn't doing? Ask yourself deep, deep. Thank you for all your uh, advice there for Felicity in Cardiff. Graham's Guide. Here's my second problem for you, Graham. <clears throat> I'm going to warn you now. It's a little bit long and you might have to concentrate, especially today, because obviously the, bra- the cold has got to your brain. OK. Hi, Graham and Maria. My friend and I have been looking to buy... Boyfriend and I, sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's key. Bit... Yeah, key, key, key. Sorry, I'll start again. I'm having told you off there. That's fair. My boyfriend and I have been looking to buy a place together since I moved in with him for lockdown last year in his rented flat share above a pub. We finally found a lovely little house and we're almost ready to move in. The problem is my boyfriend never fell for the house like I did. At the outset, I insisted that we shouldn't go ahead if he wasn't sure, but ultimately he decided to put in an offer. We're both unsure how much actually moving in will either dispel the uncertainty and fear or make his anxiety much worse and damage the relationship. There's another property in the equation. We put in an offer on a flat last summer that had an issue and had to be taken off the market. It's come back on the market, but still has an issue. Are you still with me, Graham? Sorry, who's this? My, <laughs> what? What? Oh, oh, Maria, you're still talking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My boyfriend is now keen on the flat with the issue, but I feel like we're on the edge of moving into a lovely house, which could be a wonderful home, rather than a flat with issues. I'm late 30s, he's early 40s, and I'm keen to get married and start a family before too long. He promises uh, that he wants the same thing, but is daunted by it all. He assures me that this isn't the reason why he's nervous about the house, but I expect it plays a part. Um, now, I was early 50s when you started this letter. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a long one. But, you know, there's a lot to unpick here, which all sadly leads to the same conclusion. Um, and that is from, I didn't say who it's from, Carly in Bristol. Um, now, Carly in Bristol, you have decided to share your life and have children with a great big man baby. That's what you've got there. The very fact that he was in a rented, I'm not making any, casting any aspersions on this, but he's early 40s and he was in a rented flat share with other people, presumably, above a pub when you moved in with him, which probably had its own difficulties, but then other people can diffuse things. You haven't yet lived together, just you and he. Now, he's the sort of man I think that he's happy to sail through life without making any real decisions. And you've obviously come in and you're making quite a lot of decisions. So it strikes me from your very extensive letter that he's very, very resistant to a lot of things. And I would say you just need to take your foot off the gas temporarily. I know you've got your biological clock ticking, Um, But pushing him, I don't think, is going to work. Does he want this house? Does he want to move in with you? You have to ask yourself these questions. Does he want to move in with you? Does he want to have a baby? Or does he just want to have 
pints down the pub, which is only below him in the shared flat chair, and sail through life and see whatever happens. It just seems that you're on a slightly different page. Yes. You're going into this house that he's not really keen on. You've got to make these choices now. You've got, I mean, and you're putting a lot of stuff on him saying how much will moving in will dispel the uncertainty and fear or make his anxiety much worse. You know, he needs to grow up a bit, step up to the plate. You're doing this together. Graham, what are your thoughts? I'm well, not very generous today, I know. Well, I would just say, I mean, <laughs> I like the flat has issues. Not as many as Carly and her boyfriend. Well, you know. <laughs> because you say he needs to grow up. You know, he doesn't. He only needs to grow up if he wants to. You know, I I think what, what she's done, she's stumbled upon, because of lockdown, she's moved in with him. They would never, I think they probably moved in before they would have ever moved in if, if, if things had remained normal. He... In his early 40s, living the life of a lad with his flat, flatmates above a pub. You know, that is a, a, a particular sort of life. And now... And a particular and, sort of man as well. Yes, but also that But Candy is now going, I'm going to take Carly, that man... Carly, Carly. Carly, Carly is going to take that man, that kind of men-behaving-badly guy, and I'm going to put him in a little rose-covered cottage in the middle. You know, it's just not... Carly, Carly's got this life in her head... And I think she's cast the roles quite badly. Uh, I think <laughs> because this isn't the guy who's going to live in the rose-covered cottage and be the father to her children. And he and I get it; she loves him, but her vision of the future is not the same as his. There are some very difficult conversations to be had here, and you need to have them very quickly because it sounds Carly like you've bought a house. Well, Carly knows because she said, you know about the house, he's daunted by the whole thing and he's daunted about babies. He assures me it isn't the reason he's nervous about the house, but I expect it plays a part. Carly knows that the more she pushes, the further away he is getting from a hat or a hat, a house and a hat, or a flat with issues or babies, all of it. He is just moving away from it. And, you know, before you make any of these big things, sign papers, uh, commit lots of money to this rose-covered cottage, uh, you've just got to kind of sit him down and say, let's put all our cards on the table here. I think certainly, because the trouble is, Carly, it, the more you kind of push this and kind of go, is it the flat, is it the house, is it the flat, is it the house, the more chance there is he'll just go, it's nothing, and he'll scream and run for the hills. I think what you need to do is kind of go, look, I, I, I think you're finding this very hard... And I've kind of I I thought I was bringing you along with me. I thought I said to you, "Are you sure about this house?" And you said you were. But now I really don't think you are. Shall we just put this whole house buying thing on hold? We've still got our savings. We've still got our deposits, whatever. And we'll hang on in the flat chair for a while longer and see what happens. I certainly, I think I would just wait till I know we were all waiting, but wait till some sort of normalities come back into the world because you're making a decision when things aren't normal, where, yeah, really. we, where we can't get away from each other if you're in that situation. So I think wait till the world becomes a little bit more normal and then see where your relationship is. I mean, and I would say to Carly, Graham, that all of these things are such big things, having a baby, having a house, all of that. And you've only really shared a place with him since last March with other people in a flat chair above a pub. Why not, before you commit to all of this stuff, say to him, why don't we just rent a flat, just you and I, together before um, we commit to anything? Because we've never actually lived together, just the two of us. Um, and it's been extreme situations in lockdown with everything closed and we don't know what we're doing. So, you know, let's just take it in sort of a normal life in baby steps. You share a flat together. Yeah. And then, you know, you see how that goes and then you start looking around for places. It's all too much too soon, which is why I say to Carly, take your foot off the pedal. It doesn't mean that this relationship has got to go south. It just means that you need to... Try him out a bit more. Yeah, and also I know biological clock is ticking, but but don't rush. I mean, don't rush into that because that'll be so much worse. Then you'll have a mortgage, kids. All I mean, it just it it gets worse, not better, Carly. Yeah. So I I think slow down. Let's find out what the Virgin listeners think. Uh, Bunty is back, ladies and gentlemen. Bunty and Cheadle. She lives to give advice another day, and uh, you know Bunty. No nonsense, our Bunty. No. Oh, Carly. 
You can make a man live by your rules and needs if you're determined enough, but you can't make him want to. So accept that you're looking at a future with a man you can bully or you can find a more relaxed one and be happy with that. I know what I'd choose. Good old Bunty. Bunty has a tight bun, I imagine, and some rolled up sleeves. And she doesn't wear jewellery because it gets in the way. Uh, just, yeah. uh, Guru Bob says, dump the man-child. Oh, dear. Julia. Julia is only listing in Murcia, Spain. Do that as a second home. I haven't spent a winter in England for years. Different page. They aren't even in the same library. He's living the life he wants and you don't fit. Don't delude yourself. Stop blaming a flat house of babies. He, he is not for you. Wake up. Well, Julia is, I mean, she's not messing around, is she? Joanne is in Bristol. Carly should tell her boyfriend she's going out. Hide onto the bed and listen to him speak to his flatmates about their situation. Wait, there's more. Leave all the paperwork out to egg on the conversation. See where it goes in private. Now, Joanne, have you heard of the uh, voice note feature on a phone? Technology's moved on. We no longer need to hide onto the bed. Because actually, you know, the, the bedroom might be quite far away. You'll just hear muffled sound. You'll be like, what are they saying? Yeah, try the phone thing. But I, I think we know what he's saying. Oh, Dan. Dan in London. He's so practical. I wonder if Carly's worried about buying somewhere before the stamp duty break ends in March. Well, Dan, we... Myself and Maria foolishly hadn't considered that. If so, this could be a very bad decision in the long term. It's all very well saving yourself 20 grand now, but you could just be causing yourself even worse money problems in the future if things turn sour with your boyfriend. Follow Graham's advice and put things on hold until you both know what you want, even if it does mean spending a bit more money in the future. It could ultimately save a lot of heartache and stress down the line. All I got from that was Graham is right. That's all I really heard. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it sounds like he's not keen on the house because of what it symbolises. This happened with my ex, and I didn't listen to the warning signs. Two years later on, it all ended in tears. Don't know that happened to you too. That's Natalie in Oldham. And maybe it really is as simple as he likes the flat better than the house. Surely if you were keen on it last year, then you should stick to the original choice and go with the flat. Uh, and Craig and Lucy and Haven't sod it, move somewhere else without him. He sounds useless. Well, I think we've covered everything there for, <laughs> for Carly. The Graham Norton Radio Show. Virgin Radio. Okay, there is a new movie uh, heading to you on Netflix. It's called The Dig, and here to tell us all about it is Monica Dolan. Hi, Monica. Hello, Graham. How are you today? Well, all the better for talking to you. Long story short, oh, I, I love Monica Dolan. I adore you. I just think you're brilliant. Oh, goodness. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm really excited because you've already... You're already massively in my... Well, you always were in my good books, but you're already massively <laughs> in my good books because you played Town Called Malice earlier which is all about my hometown. It's all about Woking. I was brought up in the same town as Paul Weller. Wow! So, um, because I know. Um, what's weird is hearing... Hewitt, who used to be uh, used to be head boy at my school, wrote their biography of the, of the jam, so... You are yeah. so well-connected. <laughs> and... Well, I don't know. I don't, I don't think they know me, but... <laughs> What I I'm think finding. I met Paolo Hewitt at school reunion once or something. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm finding weird is I'm not sure I've ever heard your natural voice before. It seems you always do accents. Oh, okay. I think this is my natural voice. I'm not sure. Yeah, I do do accents. I like doing accents, actually. This one was tricky in the dig. Um, but we were very, very well trained by um, Charlie Haylock, who, who, who's done lots of CDs about the Suffolk accent. And. You know, he he sort of loves language. So I, I was very well trained by him, and um, we do very specific work on the scenes and on the sounds in the trailer. And then um, we'd come out and then do the scene, and then Simon Stone, the director, would sort of leave the camera running, and we'd be expected to improvise. And I think you can probably see me just thinking, God, I hope I still sound something. <laughs> Uh, because, um, you know, I didn't know what was going to come out of my mouth and nor did Charlie, so there we go. All right, yeah. so, um, Monica, tell us about The Dig. It's a kind of a fascinating kind of little slice of history. Um, what's it about? Yeah, I think it's a... It's, well, it's a massively important part of history. I mean, in terms of... Uh, it was on the cusp of the Second World War that the, uh, this dig at Sutton Hoo took place. And also, just obviously further back in history, uh, 6 AD, it was an incredibly important find because um, at that time, uh, 
you know, the received idea, the, the received knowledge was that it was the dark ages and everyone was sort of running around in loincloths. And, um, and it was a time of ignorance and, you know, no civilization. And this, this find um, at Sutton Hoo completely exploded all that and completely changed everyone's idea of, of history and how people had been. And, you know, that was also sort of at the birth of, well, it was the birth of England, really. It was, um, it, was, it was when people started coming over from Scandinavia. And it was such an important find as well, because it was clearly a, a, a really, really important person. It would have been uh, some kind of a king who's, it was a burial ground and it was, um, it was a ship, which they would have had to um, lug all the way over from the river. Um, all that time ago. Good, and, good technical and, word know, there. bury their king. <laughs> lug. And then, so, and then they lugged yeah. this all the way here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sure that's in all the archaeology books, yeah. Because it's in, it's, but, um, I mean, I think it's all in the British Museum in, in happier times. You can go and see all the, all the treasures. And you play the wife of yeah. Basil, uh, Basil Brown. So tell us about, played by yeah. Ray Fine. So tell us about Basil Brown and his part in, the, in right. the dig. Well, I think that's... Um, you know that that's what's so fascinating about it that's that's what's been uncovered about it really because in the british museum until lately they had edith pretty's name and uh, she was associated with it because it was on her land the find but actually um ray fines plays ray fines plays basil brown who's uh, who was the initial excavator whose intuition uh kind of you know, he, he, he sort of thought, well, actually, I think I think this is, is the mound to look at. She always had a feeling about it as well. But then um, he sort of went with that. And I think to, I think she probably wanted um, somebody close to the earth. You know, he worked at Ipswich Museum and he was um, he very much said that he was an excavator, not an archaeologist. And his his dad knew all about the soil and. Yeah, they had uh, those two people sort of had a meeting of minds, I think, as well, and at least that's how it's very much depicted in the movie. And but, it's a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful film in that it is. There's something sort of elegiac about it. There's something about kind of the end of days and about you know what what remains. Yeah. I, I thought I thought. The, well, I think yeah. that you're right, and I think that's why it, there's sort of something mystical and and eerie almost about it coming out now as well because. Um, you know, obviously there's so much happening now that's that's bigger than us. And I think certainly at that time, it gave them a great sense of patriotism and drive, I think, to for there to be a find that big just on the cusp of the Second World War when no one knew what was going to happen. And, and that's really always the challenge of drama. If you're, if you're depicting something historical, you've got to have some... A feeling of suspense as well and that feeling of suspense has got to be strong and obviously lots of the time people know what the history is and and know the outcome so I think that Simon Stone captured really well just that the, these were people who didn't know they were going to be part of history yeah um, you know um, it's the basic the basic task of an actor is to pretend you don't know what's going to happen next so um, I, I think we managed that quite well with this film and very shallow uh, property porn yeah. where's Edith Pretty's house that house is gorgeous that it's an arts and crafts kind of country mansion where is it oh well her her actual house is is Sutton who um, do you know what this is so embarrassing but I was I'd been doing a play and I was filming something else at the same time. I know that we filmed some of it in time, but sometimes you're just this is so awful. No, this is like I'm in, the back of a, I'm in the I, back of a car. That's absolutely it. You're kind of um I mean sometimes I think actually in the back of the car I've asked to be driven somewhere and they said, No, that's miles from here and you're like, Oh, I thought it was really near Oh no, hang on, that was the other job, you know. So um yeah. So Monica uh, I feel like in the last few years, there's been this that you were an actress and now you're Monica Dolan. I feel I like, wait, was it W1A that made that happen or am I foolish? I don't know. I mean, I don't, I, I've got to say, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I've always been Monica Dolan. So <laughs> I mean, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't, I've got to say, I haven't, I haven't particularly, I mean, I've, you know, I'm being interviewed by you and I've done more interviews and, and that kind of thing. And um, 
I'm certainly getting nice work and I, I suppose I just try and, and focus in on what I'm doing. I try and concentrate on my job and not my career, as my dad would say. And because um, presumably, you, you know, as a, a working actress, you just kind of go, oh, great, a job, great, a job. But then there's a kind of a weird shift, oh, yeah. and I think you're in it, where suddenly, because you are now Monica Dolan, you need to be a bit, you know, you need to choose your roles. Are you aware of that? Yeah, but you know what? I've always been... What's awful is I've always, well, maybe, maybe it's good, but I've always been actually choosy and I've always, I've never really thought of a career path. I've, I remember a director saying um, that he was, he, you know, he felt sort of plagued by ambitious young actors kind of, or their agents saying, oh no, they want to do film or they want to um, do TV at the moment when he'd offered them a play. And he'd be kind of saying, well, no, this is what's in front of them. This is what's on offer. Do they want to do this? And I think that I've just always looked at what's in front of me and thought, do I want to do that? And um, so, yeah, it's, it's really sort of been, it's really just sort of been a, a, a gut decision every time. And I think it's really important to go, to go with what you connect with because if you don't, then you're kind of putting it out there that you're interested in stuff that you're not interested in. And then everyone thinks, oh, great, they're interested in that. And then you get offered more of it. So <laughs> I think, you know, it's 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 you, your sort of best way of advertising what you love to do is, is by doing it whenever you can. I've got to say as well, in you know, in the pandemic, it's all the work um, work has, has changed very much. And it, it has been a, a bit of a question of, Oh well, there's a job, you know. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Although I've got to say as well, actually, the jobs that have come up during the pandemic have been really, really special. So well, yeah. The dig. It's on Netflix from uh, next Friday. Monica Dolan. It has been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. And Thank I you can't, too. I can't wait Thanks to see the next me. thing. The next thing. Yay, Monica Dolan. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk to you again. Thank you, Graham. Bye. The Graham Norton Radio Show. Virgin Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, Our Little Cruelties has just come out in paperback. It's a fantastic kind of twisty, turner, turny, mystery, thriller. I can't tell you, but who can? The woman what did write that book. Liz Nugent uh, is on the line now. Good afternoon to you, Liz. Good afternoon. It's so lovely to be here with you. I know. Honestly, it's one of the perks of having a radio show. I get to talk to people like Liz Nugent. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Uh, so Liz Nugent, uh, Our Little Cruelties. You, I mean, I think this is your fourth novel. And yes. I, I've said that you are so good at that thing of you, you, you just, you, great openings. And then you just grab the reader and like it or not, they are on a ride. So uh, tell us how this book opens and, and whatever you can tell us about the plot without spoiling it for people. Okay, so the first line of the book is um, all three drum brothers were at the funeral, but one of us was in the coffin. And in that first prologue, it's in the first page, you learn that one of the brothers, one of these three brothers is dead and one of them murdered them and you don't know why. So you've got three questions to answer. And I spend the rest of the book going backwards and forwards through their lives as children, as teenagers, as adults, as business people or, you know, whatever careers they choose to do. And I explore all of those little rivalries, you know, the little things that kids do to each other that, you know, you might still remember when you're 53. <laughs> no, it is that you weird, know. that sibling thing. Do you have brothers yeah. and sisters? Is this come from your life or I just observing eight, other? I have eight brothers and sisters. Okay, so you've a little experience of this. <laughs> yes, well, you know, contraception was illegal in Ireland until 87 or something. Well, something so, else um, wasn't illegal, clearly. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's true. Um, um, but yeah, so I, I have a vast experience of, of uh, siblings and what they can get up to, whatever. But none of my siblings are as deeply damaged as the three I write about in, in this book. So Our Little Cruelties, I mean, the plot, it's so well crafted. And you do that thing of, you know, going back in time, going forward in time. And each time you do that, you reveal another little bit. How hard was that for you to do? Will you be writing and kind of go, oh, hang on, they don't know that yet. Or, oh, hang on, I should have told them that earlier. How, how much of, were there loads of kind of going over it or was it all planned out? 
I think I you know what I did it exactly as is written. I like I just picked random years um and kind of looked up you know the history of what was happening uh in that year or was there some big event that happened in that year and I built a story around that for that year. But um also it's they the the lifespan of those brothers is roughly my own lifespan. So I could put a lot of my own experiences into it, like the Bob Dylan concert here in 1984 and, you know, the Pope's mass being like the biggest, <laughs> the biggest thing. <laughs> I think one point, like a third of the population went to see the Pope uh, when he came here in 1979. And uh, when he came, the new one, whose name I can't remember, uh, new one uh, came last year the year before and i think twenty thousand people turned i know it was so, tragic. they had to walk miles the poor old because it was all old yeah. people who wanted to see him <laughs> i know i know but it just shows how 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 the church has lost the catholic church has really lost its grip on ireland over the course of my lifetime you know everything has changed like we can have contraceptives now we don't have to have nine children <laughs> You don't have to. And actually, in terms of your lifetime and your life, um, I didn't, yeah. you, so before you were a writer, and this is kind of in Our Little Cruelty, there's some, there's some sort of TV and film uh, world in it. One of the brothers works in that world. Uh, you, am I right in thinking you worked in that world? Yeah, I worked in theatre um, for 15 years um, as a stage manager. So I was backstage and I worked in TV on a soap opera for uh, 11 years and in between times I did a lot of work for you know film and television companies working on various uh, sitcoms and quiz shows and all that kind of stuff so I was always in that world always in that world always in the arts and then writing you started I mean you didn't start writing till what your late 40s yeah um sort of early 40s I think I I, I excuse I, me <laughs> late 30s late 30s well well I kind of I was kind of always writing but but never never anything that I'd show anybody and I never finished anything that I wrote but there was this um lovely radio program on RT or Irish radio um called Sunday Miss Only and it's little nostalgic pieces that you know people talk talk about and it's just a 10 minute piece so I wrote a couple of pieces for them and they were accepted and broadcast and you get to read them yourself and be on the radio which is quite fun as you know and <laughs> then that gave me a little encouragement to go further and I entered a short story competition and that one of those short stories was shortlisted and actually that that shortlisted story I I asked a couple of questions in that that I didn't really resolve in the short story. So I went back to that story and that became my first novel, Unraveling Oliver. Which was, so. I mean, a big hit straight out of the, the gate, which, you know, how I mean, it's one of those things. It's so scary to write a book. It's so scary to publish a book. So what a huge relief. <laughs> I know. Well, you would know. But I mean, um, it, it, it is a... but. It, it was such a shock that it was a hit, you know what I mean? I thought I was in a, a day job working on this soap opera and I really, really did, was not enjoying the job <laughs> at all. And um, I just I just thought I have to get out of here. I have to do something. So I said I'd write a book and maybe, you know, if I get a few quid, I can go off and start my own business or, or do something else. I will have a bit of capital in order to do now i didn't expect to make a lot of money i certainly didn't expect to make a living out of it but then suddenly um it kind of went stratospheric and you know america in, america came calling i mean yeah. it's just it's it's I went, fantastic I went to yeah i went to america and went to this amazon rooftop party and like i felt like such imposter syndrome but you know the thing about writers is that um it's the best kind of celebrity because people don't recognize you because like you were saying on your first show about not being recognized by the paparazzi when you're I know. coming in How depressing is your that? first day <laughs> well we are so airbrushed on our photographs and our jacket <laughs> covers that nobody would ever know who we are so um i apparently i was talking to john grisham for quite a long time and i had no clue <laughs> no clue uh, this when was the last time i saw you in real life was it at the irish book awards it would have been and that would have been 2018 
Although... I, yes, I just remember you won so many, you needed a supermarket trolley to take them home. <laughs> no, I won two. <laughs> let's be fair. No, you three. Didn't you, you get didn't three? You did so badly yourself this did, year, Mr Norton. I did get one this year, but I think you got three. Didn't you? No, I got no. I didn't. Check your no, office. Check your office. Honestly, <laughs> I'm looking at I'm looking at them as I speak. I got two um, for for Skin Deep, my third book, which was actually the one that sold the least. So I don't think winning the award did it much of a favour. But um, wow. maybe people will go back to it now. Um, that but, night, um, I mean, that night, I you know, I know drunk people. I've seen drunk people. I have never seen people as drunk as they are at the Irish Book Awards. You're not talking about me now, I hope. No, or, or me, or me. But there are no. people There are people who feel like, what happened? Like, nice people who own a bookshop in Limerick and things, and suddenly they're like, oh, just crazed. It is, I, it's the Christmas party for, well, Irish people, by our nature, you know, we're drinkers. And it too, like, it's not a good thing. But, um, our, our, you know, that that. Book Awards night is the night when the entire industry comes together and lets their hair down. And the stories afterwards are just hilarious <laughs> of, you know, people crying in the toilet, people, you know, trying to stab each other with their trophies. And, you know, it's just a night of mayhem and madness, but it's now, always really, really good fun. Yeah, because when you see people arriving at the beginning in their gowns and things it's like the Oscars and you think, take a picture now, because <laughs> in about two hours, no one looks like this. Uh, listen, Liz, we're kind of out of time, so I'll just say thank you so much for joining us. Uh, good luck with the new book. Our Little Cruelties is in paperback or out in paperback right now. Take care of yourself. Thank you and continued success to you and your writing. Oh, thank you so much, Liz. Take care now. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Hear what Ray Panthaki had to say about Series 3 of crime drama Marcella in just a little while. But first, here's Lydia West and Ollie Alexander talking all about their brilliant new show, It's a Sin. Congratulations. Yay. Yay. It's a hit. Um, you must both be thrilled. Are you both kind of online-y people? Have you been looking at the responses? Oh, yeah, I've I... been kind of looking at the messages and it's just very overwhelming and amazing and just everything. Because I've I... sort of seen seen that people are liking it, but I haven't looked too much. It's quite a lot. <laughs> oh, I must say, I was saying earlier, I don't think I've seen such you know, one-sided praise of something. Because normally, particularly on something as toxic as Twitter, you know, if somebody says something's good, then there's a load of people who make it their job to come out and go, actually, it was terrible and here's why. Uh, I haven't <laughs> seen that. People are just uh, loving it, loving it. Did, was there a, I mean, are you? I guess you know you're in something good because you're Russell Lee Davies, you know you're in safe hands. But what, what was the sense of, was it very emotional? Because it is such an emotional watch. Was emotional on set or were you just doing a job it was oh. emotional on set i think um we on the day we all met at the read through for the for the show we were all in tears reading it and then rehearsing it and filming it it was quite mm. it was quite emotional but we, we had the best time as well didn't we liz yeah i think we, we tried to like have as much fun as we could by like just getting really into the 80s spirit and dancing and kind of celebrating that but also then like do the scenes and especially the scenes in in some of the, the wards was yeah. just a absolutely harrowing and yeah emotional and then terrible. Lydia Russell G Davis kind of dropped a bombshell on you was it like the day before you started filming <laughs> yeah it was the day before the read through um it, 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 you referring to when he told me that Jill was playing my mother yeah that the real Jill yeah. was playing yeah <laughs> Yeah, so he sent me a message saying the real Jill, uh, this is very loosely based about uh, well, my life and friends' lives and the real, but so much so that uh, I have a character called Jill who plays a, who is a close friend of mine and she is in the show too, she's playing your mother, uh, but I don't want you to kind of do any kind anything differently or analyse her or try and mimic her in any way. Um, but yeah, then I met her at the read-through and she was just everything that I hoped she would be. She's absolutely gorgeous and stunning and yeah, it was very emotional. I couldn't look at her throughout the, throughout the read-through, I was just kind of looking down. I mean, because for, for you as well, Ollie, it must have been so extraordinary having a real, you know, a real person, but having, you know, the per the person who'd lived this in the room, uh, it must have been so lovely. It really was. We were all so in awe of her because we'd read the script already and 
we loved Jill so much. And then to meet the person who she was based on and, and ask her about, you know, what it was like in the 80s. And, and I remember saying to her, how did you have all the time? And, you know, you, because she cared so much, she just constantly was caring for her friends. And she really dedicated her life to do that. But that was just natural for her. She just, that was just, she never any question she was going to do that for her friends. And that was amazing to hear. And isn't it, just in case anyone's been, you know, under a stone and don't know what this show is about, we should say it, it the beginning, it, it says around the, the AIDS crisis uh, over that 10 year period, 81 to 91. But it's equally, it's very, it's a kind of timeless story because it's, it's young people coming to London and finding their tribe, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I think just the joy and friendship and kind of chosen family values just can resonate with so many to this day. Yeah, and I think you're always going to be trying to figure out who you are when you're that age, right? And you're always going to be getting into trouble and making mistakes. And I think everyone can relate to that. And also relate to the idea of, you know, the music stopped, yeah, <laughs> which is right. oddly timely. I know watching it now, I, it gives, I can't believe seeing us all party in heaven and I kiss about a hundred different boys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I just think, wow, gosh, I can't believe that was, uh, we did that. We I'd did like to that. do that. Yeah. <laughs> and Lydia, did, when did Russell come to you? Did Russell, was he writing this when you were making Years and Years? No, so it was, uh, I was filming uh, Dracula and it, it, and Stephen, the writer of Dracula, said there was rumours that Russell had a new show called Boys and he was like, but you're not going to be cast because it's about boys. And I was like, oh, God damn. And then, um, and then uh, following this, I, I, I finished and I got an email from my agent asking uh, to audition for the part of Jill. And I, I was like, oh, my gosh, no, this can't happen. I, I can't believe it. Russell's writing once again. So, yeah, then I went back in for, for a second audition and um, a couple of weeks later, I think I was one of the last to be cast out of the, the boys. Um, and then I found out I got the part and I was just like, oh, my gosh, here we go. Wow. <laughs> because, Ollie, had you watched Lydia in Years and Years? Yes. Yes, I loved her so much, though. I loved Years and Years, the show, obviously. Um, and the band. And, and the band. <laughs> band too. And um, so I was so excited when I heard she was playing Jill because I was ready to instantly fall in love with her because I've, anyone, that's watched, anyone that's seen Lydia on screen or in person, she's just the most joyful, like funny, lovely, bright, brightens up your day, your life. So I was, and she's really like that in person. So I was, <laughs> I'm a fan. Because but, I, but I was such a fan because we, we first met in a uh, rehearsal kind of room and Ollie uh, I was performing rehearsing my musical number the French Revolution and Ollie walks in and I'm mid mid song and I'm like oh my gosh here he is I've just watched Glastonbury he's walking in am I in tune <laughs> and then, and then the, 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 we finished and we just instantly clicked it was so great but I was so nervous uh, Lydia I just want to know if, if people haven't seen Years and Years this is uh, because I, am I had you done much before Years and Years uh, no, Years and Years was my first job. Okay, so I'm not stupid. I hadn't seen you before. Okay, uh, because <laughs> because I just thought you were a very good child actor, and then because of the the timeline of Years and Years, suddenly you were a, a grown woman, and I was like, how have they done that? And I mean, and it's just it's just you. You are a very you are. I I shouldn't be amazed that someone is a good actor, but you were a very good actor. How old were you? How old were you when you started doing that? I was playing seven, uh, 16. Wow. Um, it, it really, because it, it, it was like a spe it was like an amazing special effect or something that suddenly you were an adult. It was incredible. It, yeah, <laughs> there. I know this is a dull interview where I just gush. No, <laughs> there are no questions you. here. <laughs> Do you know how good you are? Uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, yay, yay, you. Uh, you, you're great. So I was so excited you were in this. And Ollie, uh, the track we played there earlier, "It's a Sin." Was that always the plan? Because it's not on the soundtrack, is it? No. Initially, the show was called Boys, and then that was always a working title. And then quite late down the line, Russell changed the, the title to It's a Sin. And um, obviously, the sh that, that song does feature in the show in, in episode four. But um, it was kind of like a... As, as because Russell changed the title, we thought, oh yeah, let's. I love that song, so let's do our own own version of it. By the way, aren't there three of you in uh, Years and Years? Yes. <laughs> what does the third guy do in that song? <laughs> Where are they? <laughs> yeah. Is he nodding along in the corner? What, what do you yeah. say? <laughs> well, when we when we're allowed to 
be in, in, in rooms with each other. They, they usually play instruments, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just you and piano, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Though this is just me and piano, so they're there in spirit mostly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, really, they're just going, mm, that was really good. Good take. Let's go again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm exhausted. So, uh, Ollie Alexander, Lydia West, It's a Sin. It's a Sin. All episodes are available on all four. And if you don't watch it, you really are missing out on something special. Ollie, Lydia, the best of luck to you. Congratulations on It's a Sin. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Thank, Bye. You. Thank you. The Graham Norton Radio Show. Virgin Radio. Tuesday sees the return at 9 o'clock on ITV of Marcella Season 3. Oh, it's twisty, it's turdy, it's dark, it's exciting. And it stars my next guest, Ray Panthaki. Ray, hello, how are you? Hi, Graham. How are you? I'm very well. All the better Good. to hear you. Now, uh, so this is season three of Marcella, and it's, it, I mean, if people have been hiding under rocks and things and don't know, uh, how do you describe it? Because it's really, it's unlike, I think, anything else on, on telly. But go, try. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'll try it. I'll attempt. It's written by Hans Rosenfeld, who, who is a, a, an incredible uh, Scandinavian writer who created a, uh, an amazing show called The Bridge and that was sort of known for its uh, twists and turns you're pulled in all sorts of directions introducing lots of characters and becomes a big whodunit and and Marcello was his first British show which took that sort of style that he sort of created I think in a way and brought it to British TV and it's a huge whodunit you, you're introduced to tons of characters it's twisty and turny and it's very mysterious and creepy and thriller-esque. And that is my best way of pitching it on this Sunday morning. OK, so Marcella is Anna Friel and she's, mm. um, she's I, you wouldn't call her a stable genius. She's <laughs> <laughs> totally unstable, yeah. Yes, you sort, of, you sort of hope that there aren't many police officers in her mould. <laughs> but you are, you're more kind of the acceptable face of the police force, I would say. Sure, he's 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 a lot more grounded, takes his job a lot more seriously, and and she, you know, she's completely rogue. And we've seen their sort of relationship build up over the last two seasons, where at first he completely hated the way she worked, but then of course he learned to appreciate her, and they built up this beautiful friendship. And then for those that have seen season two, and I don't want to spoil it for those that haven't, but something happens at the end of the season. I, I can say it. Yes, it so I think we have to be able to say yeah, yes. we yeah. can say that. So she, so she leaves him for dead essentially. They built up this beautiful friendship. She turns, like she does in true Marcella style, uh, leaves him for dead and then goes off and fakes her own death. And that's where we sort of pick up on season three, X amount of time later, where she's now infiltrating uh, 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 an, an Irish uh, uh, crime family. Because it, this does, it is kind of a, a departure for the show because you've left kind of inner city you're now out in the i mean there's still kind of grim belfast inner city <laughs> but but the grim but beautiful uh, yes grim <laughs> but beautiful because belfast is i mean belfast is such a star city it photographs so well doesn't it with the mountains mm. all around and everything but the um amanda burton she plays such a great kind of crime boss matriarch Absolutely. doesn't she yeah, she's fantastic and, and very, very scary in that role. Um, but she, she was wonderful. It was just, it was nice to, it was just such a departure of, you know, it, it was me and Anna were the only, fortunately, were the only, for us, were the only uh, two original actors from, from uh, left from season one. Um, and it was just this injection of, 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 of new people that were onto the show. So it was a little bit different stepping in. But it, they were amazing people and amazing actors, so so we thoroughly enjoyed the sort of new challenge and filming in a new environment, which is which is always great. And also the show takes a new sort of um, a, a turn. I mean, the first two seasons have always been that sort of who done it, and you're sort of f switching on every week to find out who's the next suspect. But this is more sort of is a slight diversion away from that and becomes a bit more of a family drama which I think is a, ref a refreshing reboot of the show, really. Yes, and it's also that idea that she, Marcella, is undercover, but because she, you just kind of think, how undercover is she? Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and it's also that lovely thing of, because you know, I've only seen the first two episodes, but, okay. but it's that thing where you know there's going to be a moment when you discover, oh, my my yes. my dead friend Int. So uh, yeah. yeah, looking yeah. forward looking forward to that. And you you mentioned there the that you are you two are the the remaining cast members. Mm. When you signed up for season one, because as a viewer, I just thought, oh, this is a one off thing. Yeah. Did you know it was going to be a continuing, or there was a possibility it would continue? 
I think with these things you 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 never know really. But to, having spoken to Hans um, about it, he always sort of had um, at least a three season arc in his head. He always saw the show as a as a three season arc. Um, whether it goes beyond that, who knows? And I guess it always depends. And these things, it always depends on how the audience respond to it and and the sort of fan base and stuff. And does it pull in pull in the numbers? I guess like all things. But um, you know, we're we're really proud of the show. It's been hugely successful, and um, it'd be a joy if it continued to go on. And it's one of those things. It's very twisty, turny, and entertaining. I have to say, it does make me tense. I don't know what, I don't know whether it's the writing or the way it's shot or the music. I don't know what it is, but the minute it starts, I get tense. And <laughs> but, but yeah, but it's that thing where it, it's it's all those things, it's entertaining and everything, but it uh, it takes on really dark subjects. Are were you sort of surprised when you opened the scripts and you kind of think, oh wow, we're going there at nine o'clock yeah. on a night TV drama? Yeah, see, n nothing surprised me when surprises me when Hans is writing something because you just expect it to get darker and darker. But I remember season two, uh, I, I, it went quite dark in season two, and and um, I, I remember being like, and there was a particular scene we had to shoot where me and Marcella have to see these photographs on a wall, and I knew it was going to be quite harrowing at the time. Um, but I was like, look, don't you, and, and, and the sort of props department were like, do you want to see these photos first? Because it's quite harrowing. I was like, no, 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 let's just wait until the day and you'll get, you'll get a real reaction off me. And you really did. It was quite very, very dark. Um, but the thing with Hans is, is that, it, that that's his style. And, and um, you know, and I was surprised that it sort of... Uh, you know, went onto ITV in the first place, but it seems that people like it. Isn't it? It is interesting that an audience is willing to go to that place uh, because, yeah, like, I mean, because I, I watched the first two seasons of uh, two episodes of this season and I just mm. remind myself, I went back and watched the end of season two mm. and, oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, I was, she's crazy. I was, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's whoa, it's out there. And is this the only thing that Hans Rosenfeld has done outside of Sweden, or does he work in other places? No, I think this is. I said from 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 my knowledge, I think this is the first thing he's done out of of, of where he works. And uh, and so we're 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 really honoured and proud that this is his first project. And I'm sure he's going to do loads more. He's such an incredible writer. I mean, you just he's so unpredictable. You just never know where it's going to go. And I think that's been part of the, the huge appeal of the show is that people really don't know where it's going to go next. And, um, yeah, and do, you, and it, and it, do you get all the scripts in advance or are you kind of like, do you go to the end of each script thinking, oh, still alive? <laughs> we, we don't actually. And, and I think that's part of the Scandinavian way of working. So I remember in season one, they consciously and purposely never gave us the scripts. So we as detectives and the police force were actually trying to work out who the murderer was. So, so we never knew all the way through the shoot until until we got the final episode and it was all a big revelation to us. So we were taking bets in the green room about who the killer was. Um, and, I, and I have to say, I have to say I got it right because I'm just, you know, my character's an amazing detective. You're such a great detective. <laughs> so uh, you talked about writing there and I know yeah. you've, you 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 write and produce your your own stuff. In fact, I I was talking to Noel Clark on the TV show mm. a few weeks ago, and I was going on about how amazing you got Kid Alterhood made and blah blah blah. You were uh, one of the producers on that, weren't you? Yes, yes, I was co-producer on that, and that was a real labour of love at the time, and and trying to get that made at at a time when the sort of industry weren't really entertaining projects like that, and it took years, and it almost never happened. Um, we, we got to the point where it's like we've been banging on these doors for years and, and no one's going to give us the opportunity. And then finally we had uh, a private investor come in and, and, and put the money in and it became what it did. So, yeah, we, we, we stuck it out. But it, it, we, we did have the industry closing lots of doors on us at the time. And with, you know, things like your short, your, your short film Life Sentence and then the other movie, it begins with a C, I can't remember what it's called, Convenience? Oh, Convenience. Convenience. Yes. I mean, with those... Uh, those sorts of things where, you know, they're lower budget. So is it becoming easier in a way to get those things off the ground because of all the Amazon Primes and the Apple Pluses or is it just as hard as it ever was? I think, I mean, it's always difficult to make a film no matter what, but the, the access is easier. So I think, you know, uh, and it, it gets a bit boring because people don't really want to hear this if you're straight out of film school. You don't really want to hear someone saying, well, you've got an iPhone, you could just make your own film. But the, I think what it... To, at the time when I was trying to make films, we didn't have access to the camera equipment and stuff now. Whereas, but you can shoot something on your iPhone, 
and it, it is broadcast quality. And so, you know, and you also have the ability to get your work out to the world through uh, channels like YouTube, etc., etc. So it can act as, a, I'm not saying you, you're going to go and make a film for cinema on your iPhone, but it can act as a calling card for what you can do. So you have the ability to make stuff and show people what you can do. And I, yeah, and I guess it's that thing, isn't it? You aren't uh, at the mercy of a distribution deal. You, you can actually, as you say, just get it out there. Yeah, you can you can do your art and 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 practice your craft and get it out there and show it to people. Um, at a time when I was trying to do things, I mean, my my sort of filmmaking endeavours came from a place of just being frustrated as an actor, as a young actor, and just going, oh, those those opportunities are never going to come to me. That the opportunities that I wanted, the more leading roles, and in the end, I just decided to sort of grab the bull by the horns and 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 start making my own stuff and sort of take the industry to the industry and just say, look, I can I can do this. Um, and it worked for me, but it was a lot of graft and a lot of years of of like um, sacrifice and and stuff. But I'm I'm, I'm fortunate, and and it's just a lesson really to just keep persisting if you really believe in 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 your 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 dreams and just keep going for it. It's also the thing of not being passive, not just sitting there waiting for the phone to ring. It's, you know, even if it even if it comes to nothing, at least you were doing something. <laughs> you were trying. Yeah, I couldn't do that, Graham, and that's the thing. I mean, I just get too depressed um, just waiting for the phone to ring because it didn't ring often as a young actor and um, and I just had to just go right I've just got to do everything I can and know that I've given this my best shot and um, yeah uh, fortunately for me it, it, all, it all panned out and um, but you know um, hard work I think always pays off. And here's was Arctic Monkeys playing throughout lockdown have you been in a typing frenzy is there lots of new stuff coming or are you you, you know you're now busy and you're thinking yeah I don't need to make my own stuff. <laughs> yeah no 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 I, I, I always I think you can never get complacent and so and obviously lockdown I've been pulling my hair out it's been re really really difficult so I sort of did take this time to go right when we come out of this I want to have something to show for it so I've, I have been writing I've been writing loads and I've come up with a couple of very personal projects a film and a, and a, and a pilot for a tv series and they're both really personal to me and, I, and actually you know I'm trying to look at the positives I don't think they would have come out of me had had we not been in this situation so um, but now I've sort of come to the end of them and I'm really like ah, I just want to get back on set um, but, you know <laughs> And when you're, I mean, because you, you know, you're that rare thing. You are, you're an actor. You're a kind of gun for hire, but you're also a creator. Like, is Hans Rosenfeld? Is he aware that you have this other side? Does he treat you differently because you, he knows that you are a fellow kind of creator? I, I don't know if he does actually. I mean, there was some sort of talk. We were on, on season two. Um, I sort of subtly drop my hat into the ring of like uh i could direct this episode um but no it didn't it didn't pan out it didn't pan out but you never know maybe in the future it'll happen it'll happen marcella season three it starts tuesday at nine on itv all episodes will then be available at itv hub uh, lovely to talk to you sir you too, and man. uh good luck with the series and we'll talk to you next time all right take Thank care you so much all right cheers bye 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 well, thank you very much for listening to the Graham Norton Radio Show podcast. I'm back on Virgin Radio from 9.30 on Saturday morning, and the next episode of the podcast will be out first thing the following Monday. Speak to you then. The Graham Norton Radio Show. Virgin Radio.